Heavenly Father, we approach you this morning not on our own merit, but we're able to come boldly before the throne of grace and find help in our time of need because of Jesus, our great high priest. God, he made atonement for us on that great day where he laid his life down for us. Sin had a hold on us. The grave had a claim on us. Hell was our eternal destination until Jesus changed the course of everything. And so God, as we go into this season where we reflect upon His coming the first time, God, we are thankful for Christmas. But Lord, ultimately, we are thankful for Good Friday. And we are thankful for Resurrection Sunday morning. We're thankful for Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon your church. We're thankful that we live in what is called the church age. It's the age where we are your plan A, God, and there is no plan B. You are spreading your gospel through every corner of this world through your people. God, you could have done that any way you wanted to because you're God, but you chose to use us. You chose to let us be part of your story. And God, we are so thankful for that today. And Lord, I pray that you would speak. In fact, I believe you are already speaking. God, your spirit is here and you are saying some things to your church this morning. And God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. You, are, you would give us hearts that are ready to receive new truth. God, that we would be interested in you and we would not be distracted, God. Give us a, a period of time here this morning where we're not distracted by the things that we had go on this week as we prepared for Thanksgiving and family time, God, and all of that. And we thank you for that. We thank you for family. We thank you for the blessings you've given us, God. We, we praised you for that last week and we're not going to stop praising you today. God, there's going to be a lot of preparations for this month. It's a busy time. But God, I pray you would help us to cut through all of that. And we would have laser focus on you and who you are. God, teach us a little bit more about you. Show us another facet of who you are. Teach us more about Jesus during this series, God. And today, right now, we're not even looking to the next three weeks of this series, God. We're looking for today that you'll teach us something. Today that you'll encourage us, God. Today that you'll draw us back close to you. God, we thank you that you're here. We are in your presence today. Whether we know it or not, we are in your presence. We're in the presence of the King. And we are your people. We're the sheep of your pasture, God. I just pray you would lead us beside still waters, God. You would feed us and you would restore our soul, God. Our cup would run over because of who you are. Father, we praise you today. Spirit, we praise you today. Jesus, we're thankful for you today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray everything that we pray. And God, it's in his name that we do everything that we're going to do here today. In the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, we pray together and Rushwood said together, Amen. Amen. Don't be seated quite yet. I know... 
I know it's creeping crud season. I've heard some people get sick already. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go instead of with the handshake, we're going to go with the fist bump this morning. So turn around, find some people, give them a fist bump or an air fist bump or however you need to do it. Welcome to the church today. And when you've done that to several folks, you can be seen. Alright, I appreciate those of you who move across distance sometimes. You know, you do the walkover fist bump, you know, and some of you right know you're kind of like from several feet away. And thank you guys for welcoming each other this morning. People ask me, why do we still greet each other even in flu season? Well, I think there's something powerful in greeting each other. So I'm not much of a germaphobe. I live with four kids and a bunch of animals, so I'm not too scared of the germs. But anyway, if you are, there's ways around that. So uh, anyway, I like for us to greet each other on Sunday mornings. Well, did you have a good week? Yeah. A good week? All right. We praise God. Last Sunday morning, we, we extolled His name. I had you guys stand and kind of as a testimony of what God had done for you over this past year. You know, anytime you praise God, Satan's going to show up and try to fight you. And we had a little bit of that in our family this week. Some things that went on that were unexpected. Nothing, you know, earth-shaking, but just Satan trying to mess with us. Uh, trying to calm down our praise, but I've determined that I'm not going to let him calm down my praise. Right. I'm going to continue to praise and exalt the name of Jesus because he's good, and I'm going to keep moving forward to wherever he's taken me, and I hope you have that same feeling today. Uh, just wanted to thank you guys. Uh, last Sunday, uh, church put on a birthday lunch for me. Uh, in honor of my 40th birthday, which happened Wednesday. And so uh, now I'm 40. I told my wife, I said, from now on, I get to be grumpy and nobody can say anything about it. And she said, what's different about the way that and the way you've usually been for years and years? But anyway, thank you guys. Uh, cards and, and gifts. You guys just have been so good to my family this year. And uh, we, we're just so appreciative for the way that you have blessed us. Time and time again, um, I think the way it's supposed to work in a church is the pastor is supposed to take care of the congregation and the congregation is supposed to take care of the pastor and his family and we've been doing that. Hopefully, at least you guys have been doing your job. I don't know about me, but you guys have done a great job of it. So we're just thankful and we're very humbled uh, for what you've done for us this year. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent. The first Sunday of the Advent season. It is a time of the year that I love. I don't know why. I've always loved Christmas. Well, I know when I was a kid, I loved Christmas because it was the time we got presents and we got to eat a lot, and both of those things were right up my alley. And so I love Christmas early on because of that. But I don't know. It's just a holy time of year. It's just a time of year where it's uh, it's like a thin space in the calendar where heaven and earth get a little closer to each other. It's a time of year where we focus more on God, we focus more on Jesus, and even secular people, sometimes it's for bad motives, sometimes it's because of consumerism or whatever, but even secular folks talk a little bit about God, think a little bit about God during this time of year. It's a great time of year that we can reach folks with the gospel. You can reach them by inviting them to church. You can reach them by being salt and light at company Christmas parties or family get-togethers or whatever. It's just a great time of year. But I also know the downside of that is that it's a time of year where there's a lot of hectic activity that goes on. 
There's a lot of stuff that goes on that can distract us. And so that's why I prayed the way I prayed this morning. I pray that God would kind of bring our focus back in and help us to focus on the true meaning of the season, which is the first coming of Jesus Christ. That God, I mean, what an incredible story, the greatest story ever told, that God, the God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence, Almighty God, became a helpless human baby to save us from our sins. There's lots of groups out there that can't even believe that. If, if you talk to somebody who's a Muslim, they'll say, oh no, God would never do that. He would never bring himself down to our level. He would never become a human being to save us from our sins. But that's the incredible story that the Bible tells. It tells the story of a God who loved us so much. Sin is only begotten Son. Whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the story of Christmas. And so I love this time of year. Two main things we focus on in the Advent season. Two main things we focus on. First of all, yes, Jesus came to earth as a human being, lived a, a human life, fully God, fully man, laid his life down for us on the cross, rose again on the third day, victorious over death, death hell, and the grave. And that's the first thing we focus on. The second thing we focus on during the Advent season is the reality that Jesus will come again. He's been once, but he's coming back. First time he came as a weak, frail, human child, human baby. He's not coming back that way. He's coming back as the King of Glory. He's coming back as the Lord of Glories. He's coming back as the He's coming back to overthrow evil, to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. Every evil thing that will stand against him will be defeated at his return. And he's going to set up his righteous rule and reign on this earth. And if we know Him and if we're found in Him, we get to be part of that. So we think about that this time of year as well. The Christ is returning. He's coming back. He's going to come as the King of glory. And so those are two things I hope you'll think about over the next several weeks as we move into the Christmas season. Today, kind of to go to that end, we're starting a new series. Our series is called What Child Is This? If you like traditional worship, by the way, today's your day because I think three out of four songs that we're doing today are traditional worship songs. So if you like traditional worship, I don't want to hear it. We don't ever do no hymns and wrestle with no more. Because we're doing like three quarters of them today. Take it where you can get it, folks, all right? Um, but what child is this? I asked the, the worship team to do that song. Man, didn't they do a great job on the song? That was Christ. The first view, I believe, is the incorrect view. 
It's an idea of Jesus that just doesn't match up to what the Bible teaches, or, or we could call that a false image of Christ. You might have a view of Jesus, an understanding of Jesus. Maybe it was colored by the world. Maybe it was colored by culture. Maybe it was colored by people who don't really like Jesus. Maybe, maybe enemies of Christ. You might have a false view of who He is. And that's, that's one type of view that some of us might have this morning in regard to Jesus Christ. The second type of view that we can have is a biblical view. I believe God's Word is true from beginning to end. Don't, don't ask me to explain every single part of it. Don't ask me to understand every single part of it. But I just believe by faith that God's Word is true. It's inerrant. It's God-inspired from beginning to end. I believe the Bible. And what the Bible says about Jesus is the truth about Jesus. Can I get an amen there? Can I get some support on that? So we can have an incorrect view. We can have a biblical view. But we can also have an incomplete view. Maybe what you understand about Jesus is biblical. Maybe what you understand about Jesus is right, but maybe it's not a full picture of who He is. Maybe, not, maybe you don't understand enough about Jesus. Maybe there's more that you have to explore. And really, to, to some extent, all of us have an incomplete view. Right now, we're... we're we're not seeing Him exactly as He is because we're in these bodies of flesh. We're, we're frail. We're, we're seeing Him through human eyes. One day we're going to know as we're known. One day we're fully going to understand Him. So we all have somewhat of an incomplete view. My goal in this series is for you to leave here having less of an incomplete view than you do now. And I'm sure as I study, I think God's going to reveal things to me and He's going to expand my view of who Jesus is as well. So anyway, over the next four weeks, my job is to show you some things about Jesus that maybe you've never seen before, or maybe you need to be reminded of, or maybe need to be accentuated. Is that cool? I hope so, because that's what we're going to do. So I hope it works for you, because that's the direction we're going. Most of what the Bible teaches about Jesus, and by the way, Jesus is in every book of the Bible. He's there, okay? Even if He's not there right in the forefront, He's there in the background. Jesus is in every book of the Bible, and every book of the Bible teaches us something about Him. But the majority of what we know about Jesus, especially His life on earth, is found in the four Gospels. And you guys know stuff already. You've been here a while. You've been discipled, and then you, you have some biblical knowledge. So go ahead and tell me, what are the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think that's what you said. At least that's what some of you were saying. Four Gospels, or sometimes they're called the four evangelists because they bring the Gospel to us. Two of the four, Matthew and John, were actually disciples of Jesus. They actually walked with Him. They actually knew Him personally. They were disciples or they were apostles. And so two of the four books were from direct eyewitnesses. Luke and Mark were not apostles, they were not disciples, but they were directly connected to apostles. They were directly connected to people who were eyewitnesses. And so those books are apostolic as well because they're connected to two uh, or some of the apostles of Jesus, people who walked with him, people who knew him. John the evangelist, John the gospel writer, was actually a relative of Jesus. Don't get it confused. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. John the Beloved, who wrote the Gospel, was also a cousin. He was also a relative of Jesus. And so both Johns were related to Jesus, so don't let that confuse you. John probably grew up knowing Jesus at least somewhat. 
John was the youngest disciple. He seems to be almost Jesus' favorite. If you read through the Gospels, it seems like John was the one that was almost Jesus' best friend, best earthly friend as far as human beings go. So John is really special. But the Gospel writer Matthew, I just love his story, man. Matthew it has just such an interesting, different type of background. Because Matthew was a tax collector. How many of you love the IRS? Yeah. <laughs> not, not getting a lot of positive response on that. Well, it was even worse back then because the Jews had been subjugated by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had taken over the, the Jewish state called Judea at that time and had subjugated them. And so they were the rulers. They were foreign rulers in the Jewish land. And so the tax collectors were Jewish people who should identify with their brothers and sisters in Judaism. They were Jewish people who worked for the Roman state. In other words, they were considered traitors. They were considered traitors to the cause. They were considered traitors to their religion. They were considered traitors to the brethren. And so people really hated them back then. To make matters even worse, oftentimes the tax collectors would take just a little bit more than they should have so they could line their own pockets as they collected taxes. And so that made it even more hated. That made people even more angry at them. And Matthew was one of these guys. He would sit in his tax booth and as people would come along, he would levy taxes on them and they would come to his booth to pay their taxes. Hated person. Nobody liked them at all. But one day in Matthew's life, Jesus comes by. One day in Matthew's life, the light of the world walks down the street. One day in Matthew's life, the one who came to save us from our sins came to his tax booth, came to where he was working. And he changed Matthew's life in two simple words. He simply said, follow me. Follow me. And in those two simple words, what? What a great sermon. Just two words. Matthew, there's something in those two words. There's something in the way that Jesus acts. There's something in the way he carries himself, the authority he has. I don't know, maybe it was even a look that he had in his eyes. I don't know. But when Matthew looked at Jesus, he left everything behind. He left his tax booth and he left his, his money and he left his collection and he went to follow Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Left everything to follow the Lord. And then Jesus ends up going to Matthew's house. He ends up going to eat with Matthew. And that's where the religious folks come along and they criticize Jesus for being there. Look at this man. He eats with tax collectors and he eats with sinners. And Jesus says, yep, you got it right. I do. Because Jesus said, I haven't come to save the healthy, but to save the sick. If you're well, you don't need a doctor. But Dr. Jesus is coming to save the sick. He's coming to restore those who are lost. He's coming to those who are far away. That's why I came. You guys think you're well. You think you're good. You think you're healthy. You don't need me. But those who know they're broken, those who know they're in trouble, those who know they're hated, they're the ones who know they need me. And Matthew was one of those. And so that's Matthew's story. And so it's interesting that in his gospel, Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, anytime I talk about somebody writing a portion of the Bible, understand, yes, human beings wrote the Bible. We have about 40 writers who wrote the Bible, humanly speaking. But really, we only have one. The Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, but I think also part of his experience, part of what he had lived through, Led by the Holy Spirit, Matthew decides he's going to tell us something important about Jesus. 
He's going to give us a special snapshot of the Messiah. He's going to let us know just a little bit of inside information about who this Jesus is, what this fellow is really like. And so in chapter 12, Matthew has just written about Jesus healing a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus did that about seven times. He was constantly aggravating the religious people. By the way, I, I hope I'm not considered a religious person. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I, and I would say if, if somebody said, you know, what's your religion? Yes, I would check Christianity. But that is not a religion so much as it is following Jesus. But Jesus kept ticking the religious people off. And this time he had healed a man's withered hand. By the way, the man who had the withered hand, that was, that was tough. It meant probably he couldn't work. They were an agrarian society. They were a society where manual labor was how you made your living. If you've got one hand that doesn't work, that can be tough to make a living. That can be tough to have a job. And so Jesus heals him and he restores him on the Sabbath. And it makes the religious folks so mad they decide to kill Jesus. They decided at that point, they, from that point on, they decided to plot and take this guy out because he was not following by their rules. But Matthew wants us to understand, as he writes here in chapter 12, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus' healing people isn't just something that he does to show off his power and authority. Now, it does show his power and authority. If a man, if you're sick and a man walks up and says, be well, and instantly you're well, that shows he has some power and authority that's not normal, correct? I mean, that would show this is a powerful man. This is a spiritual man. This is a man who's in contact with something that not everybody's in contact with. But Jesus doesn't just heal people to show his power and authority. Healing comes out of a special place in Jesus' Jesus's divine character. It comes out of a special part of who He is. And so Matthew writes in chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, trying to give us a snapshot of Jesus. He picks this up from the Old Testament. He picks this up from the prophets and says, Here is my servant. This is God talking in the voice of God. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one whom I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out, snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. What child is this? Jesus is God's gentle servant. Jesus is God's gentle servant. This is a facet of who he is. You see, the old concept of the gods, and all cultures for the most part, very few cultures in history have been atheistic. Most cultures in history have believed in at least some sort of god or gods. Most of them believed in many gods that ruled many different things, various different things uh, throughout the universe, throughout the world. Some believed in one god and were monotheistic. But they all had a concept of God. And most of the old con conceptions of God was that the gods were very powerful, but they were also very unstable. And ultimately, they could care less about people. 
People were just cannon fodder of these gods, this conception of God. People were just something that the gods trifled with when they wanted to, almost something to entertain them. But the gods were so powerful and so distant. And by the way, I mean, that would be a natural conclusion to come to. When a storm comes through and lightning strikes, if a person's in the way, what happens to the person? They can end up being killed. They can end up being severely injured. It seems like if a God's in control of lightning and something happens to you him, know, it just shows that he doesn't really care that much about human beings or if a tidal wave hits or if, if an earthquake hits. They were looking at nature around them and they were saying, look, there's some force beyond us and that force is powerful and that force could care less about us. That force does not care about human beings. Let me give you an example. And y'all, I almost didn't put this in here. Some of you may tune out on this, but I'm a little bit of a geek. I'm a little bit of a nerd, and I thought that oh, this is just right up my alley. So if you're a geek or a nerd, you'll probably plug in with me pretty good on this. Some of you will be like, I don't know why he's reading this poetry stuff in church. But anyway, before we knew Thor as a comic book character, and everybody knows the Avengers, I'm, next Halloween I'm going for Fat Thor as, uh, as my... As my uh, Halloween, no, I'm not, not really. Just joking. Don't, don't send me emails about Halloween or anything like that. It's just a joke. But before we knew Thor as a comic book character, Thor was a Norse god. Uh, he was the god of thunder. He was a powerful god in the pantheon of the Norse gods. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who wrote, uh, I heard the bells, the bells on Christmas Day. I talked about that last year at Christmas and explained that point to you. He also wrote a poem about Thor, but not, not the comic book character, the Norse god, called The Challenge of Thor. See if you can pick up. I am, I'm going to read that poem to you, and it's a little bit long, so try to stay with me. But as I read that to you, see if you can pick up on whom it is that Thor is challenging. Thor is challenging another god. See if you can pick up on who it is that Thor is challenging as I read this point. And also what I'm trying to show you is the conception, the normal conception of the gods, what people thought about the gods before Jesus came. The challenge of Thor says, I am the god Thor. I'm the war god. I am the thunderer. Here in my Northland, my fastness and fortress reign I forever. Here amid icebergs rule I the nations. This is my hammer, Monor the Mighty. I know I didn't say that right, but nobody can, so it's okay. Giants and sorcerers cannot withstand it. These are the gauntlets wherewith I wield it and hurl it afar off. This is my girdle wherewith I brace it. Strength is redoubled. The light thou beholdest streams through the heavens in flashes of crimson. It is but my red beard blown by the night wind affrighting the nations. Jove is my brother. My eyes are the lightning. The wheels of my chariot roll in the thunder. The blows of my hammer ring in the earthquake. Here's what's key. Force rules the world, has ruled it, shall rule it. Meekness is weakness. Strength is triumphant. Over the whole earth still it is Thor's day. Thou art a god too, O Galilean. Who's he talking to? Talking to Jesus. And thus single-handed under the combat, gauntlet or gospel, here I defy thee. In other words, there's a different conception. Jesus is a different conception of God. The old conception of God, even you can see it a little bit in the Old Testament, their understanding of God was nothing but power and thunder and crushing the enemies and nothing but might makes right. 
And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to show you something different about God. God's not like that totally. He is partly like that, but there's another facet of God that you need to see. By the way, you say, why would you bring up something like Thor? I mean, nobody's worshipped Thor in a long time. Actually, you know there's a movement to worship Thor again. There really is. The Norse mythology and that sort of thing, especially among white supremacists, there is a thing of worshiping these gods again. The people have not worshipped for a long time because it's all about might makes right and crush your enemy and have no mercy and have no grace and just no gentleness. Just run over your enemy and destroy them. Force rules the world still, has ruled it, shall rule it. Meekness is weakness and strength is triumphant. In other words, this point from Thor's point of view is saying gentleness is for fools. Don't be gentle. That, that's, that's weakness. Destroy your enemy. Rule over them. And you know, we may feel like the God of the Bible. Some of you may be here today and you feel like the God of the Bible is like Thor in that point. That God's just up there waiting to crush you. He's just waiting up there to punish you. That He really doesn't care that much about you. That He just lets you go and you know, if something bad happens, something bad happens. God has no care for us, has no part in our lives. And understand why you feel that way. The God of the Bible is not a wimp. The God of the Bible created the universe from nothing. He spoke it ex nihilo into existence. The God of the Bible wiped out most of humanity and started all over again. You don't get that far into Genesis before you find out humanity has gotten so bad, God sends a flood, wipes out everything, and starts over with the family of Noah, only preserving them. The book of Psalms teaches that God turns people back to dust with just a single word. That's how powerful God is. And in the, in the end, God will judge the whole world in righteousness and burn up, burn up the earth with holy fire. Powerful God. We serve a powerful God. And so if you don't read the Old Testament carefully, you might get an image of Yahweh God that isn't that different from the image of Thor or Zeus or Sheba, or some of these other gods that folks have believed in. But Jesus came to show us something different. Jesus came to show us another facet of God. Jesus wanted to show us that God is powerful, but He's also gentle. He's also merciful. He's also kind. Matthew 12, 20 says, A bruised reed He will not break. A smoldering wick He will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So the image is, if you have a plant growing in your garden, we don't do that around my house. We're not gardeners. We don't have time or effort or care to do that. But if you're a gardener and you have plants growing in your, and if we have them, we kill them real quick. I buy my wife's stuff like for Mother's Day. It lasts like three weeks till it dies. That's how uh, plants go around our house. But anyway, if you had a plant and something came by, maybe an animal came through and bruised that plant and kind of injured it up on one side, kind of tore it up on one side, there's two things you could do. You could just say, well, that one's done and uproot it and throw it away and just be done with it. Or you could try to prop it up. You could try to tend to it. You could try to preserve it. Some of you who have a green thumb, some of you who are good at tending plants and things like that, you get that, okay? So what it's saying is, if you're that plant, Jesus is not going to throw you away. If you get bruised, if you get injured, if you get hurt, Jesus is not going to throw you away. He's going to tend to you. He's going to keep you going. He's going to preserve you. He's going to bring you back to health. The other image is given is of a smoldering wick. 
It's like the candle where the candle has burned down, it's been burning for so long, there's just a little ember left there on the end of the candle. Isn't it amazing that when you walk up to a candle, you can breathe on it a certain way, and it'll bring it back to life, and it'll make that fire grow again? Or you can blow on it a certain way, and you can totally put it out. Both of them are breath, but one of them ignites it, and one of them takes it out totally. What this verse is saying is that when Jesus comes by, He's not going to blow you out when you're having trouble. When you're struggling, when you're just barely making it, He's not going to take you out. He's going to bring you back to life. If you'll let Him, if you'll surrender to Him, He's going to rekindle that fire that's in you. He's going to bring you back. He's gentle, He's kind, and He's good. While we were in Israel, something that just kind of this stuck in my mind as I was studying through this. When we were in Israel, we visited the Sea of Galilee. We visit Capernaum. Capernaum was the city where Peter lived. Actually, his mother-in-law's house was there. And so we got to visit the place where Peter lived. And Capernaum was kind of Jesus' base of ministry operations. And uh, so we got to see that. And we, we talked a little bit about the story of Peter. Peter's so interesting. I talked about John and how Jesus loved John and how he might have been Jesus' best friend. But right there was Peter. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. He's the disciple that always speaks up. He's the disciple that always speaks his mind. He was sort of the leader of the disciples. John is kind of quiet and in the background. Peter's in your face. He's the one that's always got an opinion. He's the one that's always got something to say. He's the one that's always going to speak up. And so at the Last Supper, I never knew this, by the way, while we were, taught, while we, while we were there, but at the Last Supper, Jesus is talking about that there's going to be a disciple that denies him. There's going to be a disciple that betrays him. And so all of them go around and they say, is it me, Lord? Am I the one that's going to do it? Lord, is it me? And Peter says, look, Lord, I'll never do that. I'll go all the way to death with you. I'll follow you wherever. I will die for you. I'll lay my life down for you. Lord, I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, before the, the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Three times you're going to say you don't know me. And Peter doesn't believe it. Peter doesn't buy into it. But sure enough, when Jesus says something because he's God, it comes to pass. And so if you remember, if you remember the story of Peter denying Jesus, he goes, he follows Jesus at a distance. And I really, by the way, that jumped out at me when I read this story this week. Be very careful of following Jesus at a distance. Very careful following Jesus at a distance. I want to follow Him as close to Him as I possibly can. Because when there gets to be distance between me and Him, all sorts of bad things can get in that space that's created. But Peter was following Jesus at a distance, and he followed Jesus through the high priest's house. And outside of the house, there was a courtyard. And outside in the courtyard, there was a fire that they had built. And I never knew this before, but it was actually a special kind of fire. It was a fire made of coals, and it's called an anthrachia. That's the Greek word. It's only used twice in the New Testament, an anthrachia. And so at this fire of coals, Peter comes over to warm himself, and they start to say, you are with him. You are one of his disciples. Your speech betrays you. You talk like a Galilean. You're, you are with Jesus. And, and Peter says, no, I, I, don't, I don't know the man. I don't know him. I'm not a follower of him. And he denies it twice. And then the third time he denies it, basically with a curse word, basically by swearing, I don't know him at all. And when he's denied Jesus three times, he looks over and he sees Jesus looking at him. 
How heartbreaking. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. He goes out and weeps bitterly. The one that he said he would never betray, the one he said he would die for, the one who loved him more than anybody has ever loved him, Peter betrayed Jesus. And he sees that look and it breaks his heart. But why I brought up the fire, this anthracia, those fires of coals, is all basically a charcoal fire, had a very distinct smell, we were told, when we were there at, at, at Capernaum. It has a very distinct smell. It smells different than any other fire. It's something you would not forget. And by the way, if, if you've never studied the senses of the human body, the strongest sense tied to memory is actually smell. You know, if, if you... Uh, some of you may have during Thanksgiving, you may have smelled a certain food and it reminded you of Grandma's house growing up. And it just kind of instantly took you back there. As soon as you, you smelled that, you were like, oh wow, that brings back memories and you're instantly transported back there. Smell is tied strongly to memory. So Peter had to remember that of this smell and this everything that was going on when he denied Jesus and he went out and he went bitterly. Of course, they try Jesus, and of course, they kill him. They, they murder him on the cross. And they think they're done with this prophet from Nazareth. They think that it's over. But three days later, they find the tomb is empty. And they find that Jesus has come back from the grave. And he's been restored. And Jesus is, is now the Son of God in power, is what the book of Romans calls it. And so Jesus appears to the other disciples, and he appears to Peter. And then you remember the story of Doubting Thomas, how Doubting Thomas came in later. But Jesus appears to Peter, and he's been resurrected, and he is who he said he was. And Peter knows all this. But Peter also knows it can't be the same for him. He's denied Jesus. Three times, not just once. Three is a number of completion in the Bible. Seven is, but also... Three is a number of completion in the Bible. Three times he perfectly denied Jesus. He perfectly rejected the Messiah. And so he knows even though Jesus is back and even though he's been resurrected and even though he's been victorious over the grave, Peter knows he can't go back to just serving Jesus. He can't go back to being the disciple, the apostle, which he was called to be. He can't go back to that because he rejected him. He failed him at the most crucial hour. At the most important hour, Peter rejected Jesus. And so he knows this. And so Peter tells the other disciples, look, I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go fishing. That's, I'm going to go out on the Sea of Galilee, take my boat, take my nets, and I'm going to go back to what I've always done because I messed up. I messed up and I'll never be able to serve Jesus again. But they're out there fishing and the Bible tells us they fish all night. Don't catch anything. I was just at the Sea of Galilee. I don't know how you fish on the Sea of Galilee and you don't catch something. There are fish everywhere. Like literally you walk to the edge and there's catfish and there's tilapia and there's just fish everywhere in this sea. It's just amazing how much, it, how, how much wildlife is in this place. But anyway, they end up catching nothing. Fish all night. As morning's breaking, they see that there's a guy on the shore. Don't know who he is. And he calls to them, asking if they've caught anything. Peter doesn't recognize him at first, but one of the other disciples says, that's the Lord. When Peter knew, I love his heart, man. Peter messes up so many times. He really does. He's an idiot like a lot of us are, you know? But Peter recognizes it's the Lord, and he jumps out of the boat and just swims to shore. He was out there at a pretty good distance, but he's not going to wait on the boat to get to Jesus. He jumps in, and he dives, and he swims to the Lord. When he gets there on the shore, Jesus has made breakfast for him. What a beautiful image. 
Jesus has cooked some fish. They couldn't catch any, but Jesus had some. He cooks the fish. He has some bread waiting for him. He has breakfast made for him. You know what he's cooking over? He's cooking over an anthracia. He's cooking over a fire of coals. He's cooking over the same type of fire where Peter denied Jesus. Instantly when Peter sees this fire, instantly when he smells this smell, it has to take him right back. It has to take him right back to that moment where he denied Jesus three times. But Jesus says something interesting to Peter. He says, do you love me? Peter says, he uses a weak form of the word. There's different Greek words for love. Peter uses a weaker one because he's been humbled now. Peter was bold, and I'll die for you. I'll go anywhere for you. I love you, and I'll never leave you, you know. And he built himself up. Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter uses a weak form of the word love, just a friendship love. Lord, you know I'm your buddy. You know I'm your buddy. Jesus asked him a second time, and Peter says, yeah, you know, I do. I love you, Lord. You know I love you. Jesus asked Peter a third time, and Peter says it hurts him because he realizes he denied him three times, and now Jesus has asked him three times, does he love him? He's setting up the whole scenario again. Peter says, I, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, go feed my sheep. Go feed my lambs. Jesus restores Peter. He brings him back. He brings him back. And Jesus was so good, man, and he was so God that he set up a fire, he set up the whole scene to remind Peter of, of what had happened before, to take him back to that hurt, to take him back to that pain, pain but not to leave him there. You know, sometimes God will take you back to the place where you messed up. He will. But it's not to hurt you. It's not, it's not to wound you. It's to bring you out of that with healing and with hope. And that's exactly what Peter does, or Jesus does for Peter. Jesus takes Peter back to that place, but he restores him. He flips the script, and then Peter is restored as an apostle, as a disciple, as the leader of the early church. And eventually, Peter fulfills what Jesus said he was going to fulfill. Eventually, eventually, Peter is going to lay his life down on the cross for Jesus. And when they put Peter on the cross, Peter says, Don't crucify me. I am not worthy to be crucified by, by, like my Lord was crucified. So turn me upside down and I'll die for him like that because I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. Peter's restored. He's bold. He preaches, he preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved in one day. I mean, that's, that's amazing, especially for that time. God restores him and God uses him. Why am I telling you all this? Maybe you feel a little bit like Peter today. Maybe you feel like you've messed up. Maybe you feel like you've been following God at a distance. You're supposed to be right there next to Jesus, but you've been following at a distance. And maybe you've messed up. And maybe some of the ways you've been living. Because we can deny Jesus with our mouths, but we can also deny Him with our lives. Maybe some of the way you've been living, maybe you just, maybe you just don't have that feeling for Him like you used to. Maybe you don't feel as close to Him as you used to feel. Maybe you just got distracted. And everything in this world all around you is taking your eyes off the one who loves you most. And you've been doing your own thing. Well, I'm here to tell you, Jesus does not break a bruised reed. I'm here to tell you, Jesus doesn't snuff out a candle that's on his last ember. Jesus is here to restore you. He's merciful. He's God's gentle servant. He's not here just to grind you into the ground. He's not here just to say, you know what, you messed up. I'm going to cast you away and I'm going to have nothing to do with you 
forever and ever. Amen. That's not how Jesus is. Jesus says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. If you'll love me, if you'll follow me, if you'll allow me to, I'll bring you back. I'll get you back to where you need to be. You just have to surrender to me. You just have to put your life in my hands again. And I'll bring you back to the right place. I'll restore your soul. I'll lead you beside still waters. I'll bring you to a place where you'll praise me forevermore. I don't know if you're like that today. I don't know if you're one of the, if you feel a little bit like Peter on this first Sunday of Advent. But we've got four weeks, and I, I just wonder if anybody, the, the worship team is going to come and they're going to sing a song. And we actually had a different song picked, and I changed it up on them because I said, I want a song that, that talks about the coming of Jesus. It talks about the presence of Jesus. It talks about this season. And so this is a very old, very old, very traditional Christmas song, especially for the first part of Advent. It was actually written by Charles Wesley. But during this song, as we invite Christ to come into this season, as we invite Jesus to be present in our Advent season in a special way, I wonder if you would be honest enough. It's going to take some honesty. It's going to take a little bravery to do this, and that's okay. When we step out of the water, Jesus will meet us there. I just wonder if you'd be honest enough to, to just come down here as we sing this song. And you can kneel or you can sit on the front pew here or you can stand or you can come up here for part of the time and pray and go back. Whatever, you know, there's, there's no drive or reason necessarily to this. We'll just let the Holy Spirit leave. I just wonder if you'd be honest enough to say, my fire's going out a little bit. I'm a little bit beat up. I'm a little bit bruised. I need some restoration during this time. I need Jesus to get a hold of me again. I need Him to build me back up. I need Him to be merciful to me. I need Him to be gentle to me. And I need Him to set me back on the right path. I've been a little bit off course. But I know He'll restore me. I know He'll bring me back. That's the kind of Savior we serve. He's waiting. It's not that He's here anymore than He's there. But sometimes when we do stuff physically, when we move physically, it's a sign that we want God to move spiritually. And so I'm just going to invite you today, if that's you, if you would just come here, if you have any need, if you have any prayer that you need today, just come. Just seek Jesus. Just, just let Him do His work at the beginning of this Advent season. I believe He's going to do something special over these next few weeks for you. I believe He's going to restore you. I believe He's going to bring you back to the right place. Let's stand together. Again, just as the Holy Spirit leads, if you feel led to come up and pray, you're invited to come up and pray. As we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. Come again in a new way, Lord. Declare this with us this morning. Come thou long expected Jesus. Oh, uh -huh. 
sang verse of that one more time, and let's all just join together, singing it strong, singing it as a prayer.